Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip... I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Imagine the opening scene of a movie. A dolly shot with a camera swooping over a major city. In this case, the south end of Boston. Which, by the way, is not the same neighborhood as the infamous South Boston or Southie. Here in the south end, you see a lot of swanky bars and restaurants. Fancy cars parked outside Victorian brick row houses where the condos go for millions of dollars. And then, as the camera passes over this neighborhood, it swoops down towards what's essentially a one-acre farm, where predominantly Chinese gardeners take a break from tending to their plots to chat and share jokes over lunch. (laughs) It's called the Berkeley Community Garden. And this is more than your typical veggie patches and raised beds. The trellises here are made from upcycled trash. Things like bed frames, refrigerator shelving, and window screens. The structures themselves stand over each square plot like these makeshift rooms. Just overflowing with vegetation and you see three levels of different types of vegetables being grown. Some in the ground, some large melons hanging down sort of into the middle space. And even on top of the trellis, yet a different type of maybe beans or something else being grown. This type of growing is called vertical gardening. It allows you to grow more produce on less land. Zoom in closer and you'll see that the melons here, they're not cantaloupe or honeydew. The Chinese gardeners here grow fuzzy melon and bitter melon on the trellises. It's a really important vegetable in the Chinese community. I mean, it has tremendous nutritional benefits, but it is lumpy, it is warty, and as its name (laughs) implies, it's extremely bitter. (laughs) Extremely, extremely bitter. It's in all ways this a front to sort of a classic Western aesthetic. This is Jeremy Liu, by the way, the former director of the Asian Community Development Corporation based in Boston's Chinatown. He says having this garden here 
it forces people to look at cultural difference. The Berkeley Street Garden is still probably the most authentic manifestation of Chinese culture anywhere in the city. Never mind the Chinese art gallery, whatever, at the MFA. This was still more authentic than that because it was alive, it was living, it was present, but not just in isolation, like in the middle of Chinatown, just a garden by itself, right? No, it was actually at the edge of Chinatown where you were actually not just expressing yourself, but you were somehow asserting your expression of your culture in other people's space in a way that they were going to have to experience. But what happens when you assert your culture in a way that others have to experience? Some people see something really special here at the Berkeley Community Garden. But other people, well, all they see is a trash pile. I'm Nate Hedgie. This is Outside In. And for our third and final installment of Yard Work, we tell the story of one community garden, how it sprouted from the rubble of urban renewal, and how its right to exist has been threatened at every step of the way. This is the story of a place that exists at the edge of gentrification and generational change. This is the story of the Berkeley Community Garden. Here's producer Felix Poon. Which one is Arlene's? Oh, there's Arlene. Hi. Hi, Arlene. Hi. I'm just Hi. walking along. I would have <laughs> forgot all about you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Arlene Ng is a middle-aged Chinese woman with short hair and a round face. And she seems perpetually smiling, at least when I see her. Arlene's one of the few gardeners left in the Berkeley Community Garden who remembers when it all began. From what I remember, it was just an empty block. Nothing was happening to it. So there was a bunch of neighbors that decided, let's do something about it. And they did. And they they went ahead into the garden, and they started cordoning it off, digging, putting soil in. And these are all Chinese folks? Yes. Yes. And they took over the land. And your mom was one of them? My mom was one of them. It really was like a rubble field. This is Jeremy Liu again, former director of the Chinatown-based Asian Community Development Corporation. The pioneers of on this land really were folks who were willing to just squat there and just start growing produce. It was the mid-1960s when Berkeley Community Garden made its place here. Lyndon B. Johnson was president. He signed legislation that year lifting immigration quotas, leading to a growing number of Asian immigrants moving to Boston. What they found when they got here was a city in transition. White flight to the suburbs had drained neighborhoods of tax revenue, and the city of Boston was demolishing whole city blocks to build highways, new housing projects, or sell land to private developers. After the city demolished the block here on East Berkeley Street, though, they couldn't decide what to do with it. It just sat there. So the local residents decided to go rogue. And did they grow the same things that, are, that they're growing? I think it's the same vegetables that you see right now today. 
it's the same thing. It's the bitter melon. It's the fuzzy squash. It's the beans. It's the, the, the red that like, looks like lettuce. I don't know the name of it, but everyone grows it. So it's basically all the same. Everybody grows the same vegetable. <laughs> when I look at old pictures of Berkeley, it almost looks like you're in the middle of the countryside. Women carrying buckets of water, men building structures, kids running around. They're surrounded by trees and homemade trellises built from spare branches and sticks. These days, those trellises are made from upcycled trash. Jeremy says it reflects a certain low-income Chinese immigrant aesthetic. Reflecting a resourcefulness, but also an ingenuity and a, a focus on how to maximize the use of the space for growing food and for um, not having to spend money to, on those things. Really, it was a way of, you know, survival, right, and resilience and, like, making space for themselves. But as resourceful as this all was, it was technically illegal. Arlene's mom and her neighbors had no rights to this land. That is, until 1974, when the state passed the Massachusetts Gardening and Farm Act, allowing people to farm and garden on vacant public land. And the city of Boston decided, rather than fight guerrilla gardens, they'd encourage them. And so in 1976, the city completed the construction of the Berkeley Street Community Garden with fencing, raised beds, and irrigation. It's only about the width of a school bus, but it runs the length of a full city block, like a ramshackle bridge stretching between Chinatown and the South End. And if you really stop to think about it, it's a miracle that it's still here today. There was a growing housing shortage in the 1980s. From the perspective of developers and city planners, gardens were shovel-ready for development, prime real estate. One of the community gardens in the edge of the South End was in fact raised for low-income housing. This is Betsy Johnson. Betsy's not Chinese, and she wasn't a gardener herself. But she was the kind of local activist that got involved in just about anything and everything in her neighborhood. And the threat to the gardens was a tricky dilemma. The folks using the gardens were really the same folks that were at risk of being gentrified. They needed affordable housing, but they needed the gardens, too. And other community gardens around the city were already being torn up to make way for development. And we saw the need, uh-oh, unless we come really work with the affordable housing community, we're going to lose more of the gardens. But to make the case for the Berkeley Community Garden, it needed a major makeover. In the years since it was first created, it had devolved into a dumping ground. and was overrun with rats. So the community took maintenance into their own hands with a massive volunteer cleanup. All told, more than 25 large dump trucks of trash and debris got removed from Berkeley, and a new internal organization was set up. The Berkeley Street Community Garden is now a proud place. This is an excerpt of a letter to the city from a nonprofit that helped organize the cleanup called Boston Urban Gardeners. The amazingly productive horticultural techniques of its Asian gardeners techniques the non-Asians are learning to apply are themselves alone sufficiently valuable to justify preservation of the entire garden. The victory of the Berkeley Gardeners is a story we all can appreciate and learn from, a story we ought not to cut short. And so the city agreed. They decided to build housing elsewhere 
and not take any part of Berkeley for development. Instead, they created a land trust that would own and manage the garden. Betsy Johnson became its president and signed an agreement with the city in 1992. And as long as the terms of this agreement were met, then the Berkeley Community Garden could keep on growing generation after generation. But there was one last thing that the garden needed to contend with. The condition of these gardens is horrendous. Trash is used for gardening structures. Angry neighbors. It looks like a garbage dump, and as far as I'm concerned, it hurts the value of our real estate. This is an excerpt of a 2009 email from a South End resident named Rob Visconti to a neighborhood association in the South End. And just to be clear, this is a voice actor reading Rob's email. He declined to be interviewed for this story. Now, Rob said it wasn't just him. There were a bunch of neighborhood residents that were all fed up with Berkeley. And he honed in on a particular grievance, the garden's construction of a new fence along East Berkeley Street. He said the new fence didn't meet South End Historic District Code, that it would give cover for crimes like prostitution, drugs, and loitering. Enough is enough. The trust has been broken with the neighborhood, and something has to be done about this garden trust. If they will not comply with zoning and agreements made with the neighborhood and the city long ago, then perhaps we should be discussing petitioning the city to take the land back and create a real community green space or something else that brings value to our neighborhood. He didn't like immigrants. I mean, he didn't like poor people. This is Betsy Johnson again, then president of the land trust. So he started an online smear campaign about the Berkeley Garden. Um, It was anti-Chinese. I mean, it was anti-immigrant. Rob didn't agree to an interview, but he did write us back to say, quote, any ridiculous and fraudulent claim of my comments being a strain of Asian hate is outright slanderous, unquote. He goes on to say that his email was entirely based on the fact that the land trust violated their agreement with the city. And Rob didn't stop with an email. He spoke to the press, created a website, and he complained directly to city authorities about the gardens. But I wouldn't call what Rob did a smear campaign, especially because he is right that the garden violated the agreement. According to that agreement, any landscaping changes, like a new fence, were supposed to have been approved in writing by the Boston Redevelopment Authority, or the BRA. And they never consulted the BRA for this fence project. As for whether Rob was being anti-Chinese and anti-immigrant in his complaints, well, Rob didn't do or say anything explicitly racist, as far as I know. But I do think back to what Jeremy Liu said about cultural difference and bittermelon. To have something that is so weird and funny looking and foreign being grown as a value is that idea that how do you um, help people understand differences of value to different communities and cultures, right? And how people value different. And when I look at a particular section of Rob's email. The gardens are not of a benefit to the people of this neighborhood or the city. That's what I want to ask Rob. Do the gardeners here not count as people of the neighborhood? And this valuable land is being used by a small number of people who feel they're entitled to make this public land their own. 
There are 159 plots in this garden. Most of the Chinese-owned plots are feeding whole families, as well as neighbors and friends. And this is not to mention the more intangible benefits of bringing neighbors together from different ages and cultural and economic backgrounds. There was and is a strain of anti-Asian feeling in the South End. This is Anne McQueen, a former gardener at Berkeley. Anne says the garden became a locus for anti-Chinese sentiment in the South End because that's where Chineseness is on full display. People would openly say, you know, they don't live in the South End. They're not part of the South End. What are they doing here? Why, you know, why do they, you know, think they can develop this property? Betsy Johnson, the land trust president, admits to dropping the ball on getting BRA approval. But it wasn't because they weren't trying to do the right thing. She says that they spent years getting feedback from South End residents about construction and that they consulted with city agencies who all approved the fence. Was there ever a threat that they could have taken it back? Yeah. I mean, as I said, there was this reversion clause. And, you know, if, if this guy, you know, continued his smear campaign and getting these people, all these people to make, sign these petitions and put it this way, enough that this said, we need more political clout. What was at stake was the Chinese community's right to be here at Berkeley. Protecting that right, in a lot of ways, mirrors the history of Boston's Chinatown itself. The first Chinese immigrants came to Boston in the late 1800s, settling in what's now called Pingon Alley. Pingon translates as safe and sound, a name that sums up the simple hope for the new community here. With the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the lifting of restrictive immigration quotas in the mid-1900s, Chinatown grew. But then highway construction and gentrification slashed both the size of Chinatown and the proportion of Chinese people living there. The fact that there's still a vibrant Chinese community here today is because people and organizations, like the one Jeremy Liu was the director of, fought tooth and nail to keep as much of Chinatown affordable to the low-income Chinese families here. The same goes for Berkeley. This was a place where people who normally don't have access to influencing the way the built environment looks had every right to do that, unfettered by anybody else. To make a space here to be safe and sound, that's what was at stake when they stood up to preserve the Berkeley Community Garden. Finally, we met with the mayor, with Mayor Menino. This is former gardener Anne McQueen again. Anne, Betsy, and another garden advocate named Valerie Burns were all there. I remember he had a very big brown leather couch. Um, you know, there were big chairs. We sat around the coffee table. It was sort of a meeting among friends. That's Valerie. The mayor recognized um, Betsy and me, and he known us, you know, from many years in our work and in our neighborhood. So it was very friendly. Valerie says the mayor just loved the community gardens, especially how suited they were for older residents. It was the place that seniors could come and show that expertise, demonstrate it, and teach it. And he loved, he loved that. And so they asked the mayor if he could give the land trust full autonomy over the gardens. 
And he agreed. He said yes. And with that, Rob's campaign against the Garden was essentially over. The agreement was terminated in 2012, and the land trust was eventually absorbed into a larger statewide conservation organization. So, ironically, Rob's campaign actually set the Garden on a path towards greater protection. having more pictures but who knew this is the original is that your mom yep oh, that's this is very productive this is very leafy green this is arlene ng again we're looking at old photos from 1992 of her mom one of the original gardeners oh that that's a very big melon that's like the size of a small human mm-hmm. <laughs> size of a child <laughs> and she's kind of disappeared and in, mm-hmm. in, in, in behind the leaves you mm-hmm. see a little head peeking out from the yeah but look how happy she is yeah She's, she looks very proud of that melon of course they all are well we started um assisting my mother probably in the last couple of years of her life she, she passed in 2010 so we decided it was time for us to take over because she just wasn't able to do so and so she and she was okay with it. I didn't want to let go of it, and I want to continue with the garden. I want to keep it going as long as I can, because it's her garden. It'll always be her garden. Even now. Even now, of course. Of course, it's her soil. <laughs> you know, I just put the plants in, but it's her soil. Coming up after the break, Felix talks to the gardeners and listens to their stories. But first, Outside In is supported by you, our listeners. So if you're liking this story and our Yard and Garden miniseries, you can contribute at our website. Go to outsideinradio.org donate. And thank you. brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Good morning, everyone. I'm John from The Garden. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for coming today. Uh, As you can see, we've got quite a crowd this year. This is Outside In. I'm Nate Hedgie. Before the break, producer Felix Poon told us how the Berkeley Community Garden went from a guerrilla garden to a protected neighborhood institution. Now, in the second half of the episode, Felix talks to the gardeners themselves and about the relationships that are growing here. Okay, here's Felix. What's your name for now? 
and an email or phone number if you win. We'll... It's a sunny, brisk April morning, and the mood is giddy. It's lottery day, the one day every year that you can try your luck at getting a plot. John McLaughlin is standing up on a stone block, and there are some 100 or so people standing around him, waiting for him to draw names from a bag. I show up with my cousin Eileen Poon to help interpret for me. But pretty quickly, she gets roped into helping John, too. Luke Hsu Yang. Here's my translator. Is this you? John mispronounces the Chinese names. He's white, and a lot of the folks here are Chinese. So it's awkward, but it starts to go smoother when they decide to just read the phone numbers. They want to say the phone number. A Chinese woman comes forward to say, that's me. One of the reasons I chose to do this story about Berkeley is because I wanted to see it done right. The New York Times and the Boston Globe have sent reporters here to write up stories about the garden. Professors have come here with their classes to interview the gardeners. And the organization that now owns Berkeley wants to record their oral histories. But as far as I can tell, none of these efforts were or are led by someone who speaks Cantonese or Toisanese, the primary dialects that are spoken by the Chinese gardeners here. And to really understand this place, you have to talk to them to hear their stories. So over these past few months, that's what I've been doing, talking and listening, sometimes in English and sometimes in Cantonese. Some of these stories are about conflict, like this one story from Helen Ng about a dispute over pumpkins. Some of my vines wandered onto someone else's plot, produced a lot of pumpkins. They're mine, he said. It was clearly from my plot. You don't even grow this stuff. How is it yours? Well, I didn't want to fight. He took them, all six or seven of them. So not everyone here gets along. That's the thing about having a plot here. It's like sharing a space with hundreds of neighbors, but you can see through the walls. And that's not always a bad thing. A lot of people here love how close they are with their neighbors. Like Sarah Hutt. Sarah's white, and she's one of the garden leaders. And she told me this story that's a perfect example of cultural and literal cross-pollination. Some of the ladies started tossing seeds into my garden. And they would be like around the perimeter laughing, and I don't know what they were talking about, but, you know, it was fine. And so um, I ended up with these zucchini and whatever they were growing that they cross-pollinated. So I got all these really weird-shaped squashes. I mean, one looked like a a big um, tuba. That was just such a hit. They really loved that. When people talk about Berkeley as a place that brings communities together, that's what I think of, seeds being tossed from one plot to another. But I also think of how the garden is like a bridge, not just between cultures, but also between generations. I put my name in the lottery, and surprisingly, I I got a plot that very first year. That's Kim Sito. 
Kim got her plot here when she was just 20 years old or so. And my dad <laughs> was really skeptical of me coming down here. He was like, oh, don't hang out down there too much. It's, it's dangerous. Um, but I started growing, you know, tomato, basil, simple things. Um, and then a year or two after, I, um, I had to go away for the summer and I asked my dad to water my plot while I was going away and <laughs> he fell in love with coming down here and after that summer he kind of took over the garden, started growing bitter melon and winter melon and trying different things. <laughs> so as it turns out, lottery day isn't the only way that you can get a plot here at Berkeley. Although this particular story is a bit of an outlier. Plots are usually passed down from the older generation to the younger generations, like family heirlooms. This is Mrs. Lei. I spoke to Lei along with her daughter, Sue. And Lei has been gardening here since the 1990s. I asked her how she got the plot. Was it through the lottery? Not the lottery. A friend gave it to me. Lei met this friend at the Lei Family Association. Family associations are social and civic organizations that provide a lifeline for Chinese immigrants of the same surname, who might otherwise feel pretty isolated in their new home country. You can find them in Chinatowns all across North America. So Mrs. Lei's friend was, of course, named Mr. Lei. Yeah, Sing Lei, yeah. Yeah, Sing Lei. Yeah, of course. She met him at the family association after all. Yeah, Anyway, Mr. Lei had been gardening in Berkeley for decades. But then, in the 1990s... He got sick, couldn't tend to it anymore. He was in the hospital. Yeah, he was 90-something, had no kids, nobody. He was really sick. Nobody was visiting him. So the association members, we were always bringing food for him. Mr. Lay's garden plot might have been the only thing of value he had left. And Mrs. Lay was probably the closest thing to family he had. So, just before he passed, Mr. Lay said to her, garden was hers. But someday, Mrs. Lay will pass the plot on again to her daughter, Sue. Mrs. Lay is eclectically dressed. Bright yellow Crocs, a camo-colored cap, and a maroon-colored shirt with repeating geometric patterns. Plus, she's donning a blue surgical mask and pink latex gloves. It's a style I can only best describe as COVID-era Chinatown grandma. I asked Mrs. Lei, why grow these veggies when you can buy them at the store? Like, what does having this plot really do for you? Because it tastes better. Gardening lifts my spirits. I get some exercise. That's why. I'm retired with nothing better to do. My kids are all grown. My grandkids are all grown, right? You can't buy veggies this good. It's more organic. <laughs> this is Sue jumping in here, Mrs. Lay's daughter. I spent a lot of money on fertilizer for her, okay? The good stuff. My Passing down plots from generation to generation can be a source of tension. It's like a family business. Some kids don't want to take over the garden. Others want to do it differently, ditch the bitter melon for things that are easier to grow, like flowers and herbs. Sue says when she takes it over completely, 
She's just going to grow flowers. I asked Mrs. Lei, what do you think about that? I'll be dead then. What do I care? The next door neighbor would give me a side eye. When I'm dead, she can do whatever, and I won't know about it, right? I'm already 80-something now, as if I have a long time left. Come on. Let's see if she can even grow veggies, see if she's lazy or not. I'm going to hire somebody to water the plant. These stories are a window into the authentic living relationships here. But I think the true essence of the relationships at Berkeley is contained in the many mundane moments that happen in the garden, oftentimes in the leafy enclosures. Like this one moment, I'm walking in the garden and Fanny and her friend Ada say hello from inside Fanny's plot. Hello, hello. I step inside the doorway. Ada's sitting on a stool on the ground and Fanny's being a busybody and pretty quickly comes up to me and offers me a zhong. A zhong is kind of like a tamale, a fist-sized ball of sticky rice and pork wrapped in banana leaves. It feels rude to accept it. I have nothing to give in return. But it feels rude not to accept it. And plus, zhong is comfort food. It's one of my favorites. Fanny hands me the zhong in a plastic bag. It's one of those bags that says thank you on it, with a yellow smiley face. And I happily take it. And then she just keeps offering me more and more veggies. <laughs> Fanny's generosity, it makes me a bit uneasy. Like, who am I to her? We're basically strangers. I'm not used to this level of sharing and generosity. Not between strangers. Not in Boston. <laughs> Fanny and Ada's conversation turns to other things, like an electric bike that Fanny's son bought her as a gift. And their children, whether they help out in the garden or not. Which their answer to that is, not really. You know how it is. Fanny pulls up a stool next to Ada, and they both unwrap the banana leaves off their piping hot zhong and eat their lunch. I say thanks and goodbye. Back at home, I lightly boil some of the choy that Fanny gave me, add some oyster sauce to it, and have it with the zhong. And I think about the generosity from Fanny and Ada, and from a lot of the gardeners at Berkeley. I mean, where else, honestly? Sure, sharing and generosity exist in other gardens as well. But I think here at the Berkeley Community Garden, they really do the community part really well. Hi, how are you? Today's a clean up day? Yeah, Monday. My mother goes, oh, I was like, it's clean up, where are you? She's like, make sure you sign the name. I was like, sign what name? This episode was produced and reported by me, Felix Poon. What's in the bag? Gao choy. Gao choy. Ho heng. Special thanks to Helen Ng for the gao choy. <laughs> you, you, you take it, Arlene. No, I'm good. No? I'm good. No, I'm good. Uh, 
And special thanks to Sarah Hutt for taking me on our walks through the garden to introduce me to the gardeners. This is Arlene that I mentioned. Arlene, hi. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you. Also, a big thank you to Michelle Slater and to Julie Stone, Zach Nowak, Mark Gardner, Michelle DeLima, Vidya Tiku, Peter Bone, and Jessica Holden. Thank you to Lauren Chuljan, Nick Capadice, Jason Moon, Hannah McCarthy, Julia Furukawa, Christina Phillips, and Rebecca Lavoy for their voiceovers. And to my cousin Eileen Poon and her family. Unbelievable! Hello. Look at that! Wow. You have to come help me! <laughs> Look at this row of if you want to see pictures of the Berkeley Community Garden or take a look at old city records about the garden, we'll post them on our website, outsideinradio.org. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. This episode was edited by me, Nate Hedgie, and Taylor Quimby, with additional help from Justine Paradise and Jessica Hunt. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. This was our third and final installment of Yardwork, and we want to hear from you about what you thought. Stuff like, you know, should we do this again? What topics would you want us to cover? You can hit us up at outsidein at nhpr.org or give us a call at 1-844-GO-OTTER. And some of you actually have already gotten in touch. Liz called our hotline from Austin, Texas, after listening to our episode on heavy metals and gardening. Which I thoroughly enjoyed listening to, but I noticed that you uh, did not mention soiled bioremediation. Liz shared a few projects that use fungi and plants to remediate soil and remove contaminants, including actually in New Orleans, where contamination is a huge problem in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Actually, that sounds like it would be a pretty cool subject for a future episode. Thanks, Liz. Be well and keep up the good work. Music in today's episode was from Walt Adams, Blue Dot Sessions, and Airy. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And Outside In, as always, is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.